Hello, everyone. Uh, this is Don Detour, editor of Tire Business, welcoming you to View from the Top, our online chat with top executives from the tire and automotive service industries. Today, we are talking with Richard Smallwood, president and CEO of Sumitomo Rubber North America, Inc. Sumitomo, which manufactures Sumitomo, Dunlop, and Falcon branded tires, ranks as the world's fifth largest tire manufacturer according to Tire Business's Global Tire Report, with sales of around $6.8 billion. Richard has been with Sumitomo since January of 2000, joining the company as an executive with Falcon Tire. Richard was named President and CEO of Sumitomo Rubber North America in March 2011. Richard, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for inviting me. I'm glad to be here. Well, let's get started. You recently testified before the U.S. Department of Commerce about the negative impacts of tariffs on imported auto parts. Can you briefly capsulize what the impact will be, first, broadly from a market standpoint, and second, how it might impact Sumitomo Rubber North America? Sure. What I'll, what I'll really do is I'll break it down into three areas. One is disruption. Two is price increases to consumers. And three is reduction of funds available for investment in machinery and people. So I'll break it down into those three buckets right there. Um, in, terms of, in terms of disruption, you know, we have global supply chains designed to optimize production for the original equipment and replacement markets. Most producers, especially tire producers, can't make all of the products needed for a market in just one facility due to the various types of machinery required and the, and the product-specific raw materials needed to produce a wide variety of tires required by the market. So um, manufacturers will now have to go back to the drawing board to determine the best way to adapt their production strategies to accommodate these changes. You know, what complicates matters most is that we don't know whether the tariff is actually going to happen or not. We don't know when it's going to happen and what the amount of the tariff will be. So that, that creates a giant ambiguity in our planning. So the next is the price increase to consumers. And you know, there are very few industries I know that can absorb the level of tariffs suggested by the Trump administration, which means that some portion of the increased cost will be inevitably passed on to consumers. You know, what share of that increased cost gets passed on to consumers is you know, frankly impossible to guess right now because the market will determine that, but it's probably going to be fairly significant. And then third, the reduction of funds available for investment in machinery and people. And, you know, as any business person knows, the capital used for investment comes from the profits generated by the company. And if the company makes less profit, then it will need to cut expenses in multiple areas in order to continue to generate enough profit to be viable. But also we have to satisfy our shareholders. So, you know, there's definitely going to be impact for everybody on how much money is available for investment. Now, if we break it down just to the impact for SRNA, and I'd say that, you know, we will be impacted much the same way as any other business will be impacted by the tariffs. We operate in the same environment with the same set of challenges, and we're going to have to find creative ways to adapt to the new market conditions. So, it's, you know, there will be impact, but no more so than anybody else. Yeah, it's an interesting, uh, interesting topic going forward for sure. Yes, to say the least. 
speaking of which, it's it's been quite an eventful year for the tire industry, uh, starting with the formation of a new tire distribution company, National Tire Warehouse. Uh, how have these disruptions affected how your company approaches the market? And I guess, do you foresee uh, more mergers and acquisitions on the immediate horizon? Well, first, let me touch on the our view of what's going to happen on M&A going into the future. Uh, first, we, we definitely expect that the industry consolidation will continue at the same pace it has been experiencing over the past few years. You know, we're, we're pretty much convinced that's what's going to happen. But I can't think of another industry with the same scope and maturity as the Thai industry that remains as fragmented as ours is. So we have a very old, very mature, large industry, and it's still very fragmented. So consolidation makes sense. I would expect to see more private equity money coming into the industry to further drive consolidation. And then I would expect to see that followed by some of these merged companies eventually going public. That would seem to be a natural occurrence. Uh, the challenge to all that, however, is the unbelievable resilience of the independent dealer. You know, the independent dealer still makes up a significant portion of the market and still finds ways to not only survive, but thrive through all of this market change. And when you think about it, it's really pretty amazing, you know, how the, the independent dealer is adapted through all of this. Now, in terms of it affecting our approach to the market, you know, our approach to the market has been focused on getting our dealers the best products possible at a competitive price that allows them to make money selling our brand. Because ultimately, that's what it boils down to. If the dealer doesn't make, selling, doesn't make money selling your brand, they don't need you. So we've come out with a lot of new products that have been able to help us generate strong consumer demand, you know, through performance, appearance, value. And we've realized that a great product with strong dealer relationships is what's really given us the edge the last couple of years. It's, it, but the relationship thing becomes, you know, generating profit and having a strong relationship, definitely very critical. Now, did the, uh, did the uh, startup of the other tire distribution company, uh, Tire Hub, which was formed through a joint venture between Bridgestone and Goodyear, has that impacted your business as well? Yeah, actually impacted us very positively. So, you know, if, if we look at the impact to SNRNA, you know, we've been pretty fortunate to have experienced unbelievable growth the last couple of years. Um, some has been due to great product. Some's attributed to a, we have a much more aggressive and much more disciplined sales approach now. Uh, but I would say that a big share of the growth is really being attributed to the dealer's desire to find a manufacturer they can partner with, somebody who they feel safe partnering with. And this effect started to intensify once the dealer saw the strategies being taken by the big three. And they wanted to partner up with a supplier they didn't have to compete with. So in short, the actions taken by the big three this last year have really helped us to have great growth. So it's been positive for us. Does SRNA uh, distribute its tires through NTW or, or ATD or both? And if so, will that continue for the foreseeable future? We do not do business with NTW or Tire Hub, and we don't foresee ourselves doing that in the near term. And how about with ATD? Yeah, we enjoy a very healthy relationship with ATD. You know, we've been growing 
our business with them. It's been very positive, and you know we look forward to continuing growing with them for many more years to come. Great. Richard, how does your company plan to leverage its expanding original equipment position with dealers and with consumers? This is going to be a little bit longer response. So, you know, it's, it's no secret that since the dissolution of the global alliance between SRI and Goodyear, that we've placed a very, very heavy emphasis on establishing a meaningful OE presence with Falcon brand because we really didn't have any Falcon OE prior to that. And we'd known for a long time that that lack of a meaningful position with the OEMs was really impacting our ability to grow. You know, we essentially had hit a volume wall and were not able to bust through that wall. And we could pretty much see that it was the lack of OE that was, that was hurting us. But now we can see, you know, with our aggressive growth in OE, we can see that what was once our weakness is now going to become our growth or our strength. And, you know, while I can't, because of the, the rules with the OEMs, I can't give you all of the details yet, but, you know, here are the, some of the fitments we have now. Porsche Macan, Mercedes G-Wagon, the Ram 1500. We have several different Jeep models, Nissan Rogue, Nissan Altima, Force, the Subaru Forester, Mazda 6, several Volkswagen platforms. And some of the ones that we'll announce in the near term are yeah, very exciting. So this OE presence is going to help us, you know, make our dealers feel more comfortable with our brand. It's going to bring more business to the dealers for the Falcon brand, and it's going to make the the consumer much more familiar because now they're going to see, you know, the Falcon brand on their new vehicle, and I believe that's going to give us some additional capability, or not capable, but credibility. Yes, it seems like uh, almost every other week. Um you guys are announcing a new uh, an agreement with a auto manufacturer. So that's got to be pretty exciting. It is because years ago we didn't think that was ever going to happen. And again, I can't tell you all the plans, but you know we're actually going to introduce brand new product concepts. So not only fitments, but new product concepts on some of the new platforms that will be coming out. So we, that means we get to be the market leader on the whole new product concept. And that, to me, is exciting. Great. Uh, can you provide us an update on the ongoing expansion at the Tonawanda, New York facility? Is it on track to be completed by the end of 2019? And I guess, how will that expansion impact dealers? Well, you know, first, the expansion has been going very well, but not without some challenges. And the first thing to understand is that we're doing a lot more than just expanding daily output. So it's a lot more complex than just increasing capacity. You know, we're also increasing SKU complexity significantly. We're updating all the machinery and processes, you know, so we can ensure that pro product coming out of Tondawanda meets the same standards that our product does out of all of the rest of our product, out of our plants. So, you know, there's, it's more than just expanding the output, it's expanding SKU complexity, the quality, all of that. So it's, it's a huge task for the people at the factory and they, they work incredibly hard. Um, the benefit for the dealer will be eventually that all of this investment will result in greater fitment or greater fill rates for our customers. You know, that's really the benefit for our customer. 
Um, as far as whether or not it's going to be completed by the end of the year in 2019, I would have to say probably not. And it's because as we evaluate our changing product mix, because we've made a huge change to more light truck or large OD light truck, that will affect what the requirements are. We have significant growth in OE, and a lot of the OEs want product out of Buffalo. They want it out of the U.S. production. And then you add, add in the possible tariffs. All these factors are going to determine what the term done looks like. So whether it will be done in 2019, my guess is no, just because the factors are changing way, very quickly and dramatically. Interesting. Well, I had the pleasure of, of hearing uh, one of your speeches last year at the uh, Tire Industry Association on autonomous vehicles. So I thought I'd ask you a few questions about uh, autonomous vehicles. Um, well, how it's always a fun subject. <laughs> how soon can we expect AVs to become part of our daily lifestyle? And what are some of the major obstacles that, that stand in the way as you see the market moving forward? All right, first let me have a disclaimer, and that is I'm not sure anybody agrees. If you can ask 100 people, you're going to get 100 different responses. And, you know, and I definitely know I, I disagree with many people in terms of uh, what the barriers are. So I'll so I just have that little disclaimer there. I, I like to have my own opinion and not follow what the rest of the sheep are going to do or say. Okay, So fair enough. The, I, go ahead, all right. So the timing for when they become part of our daily lifestyle, that's a difficult question to answer due to a large number of unknown variables. So we look at it from a very practical standpoint. Autonomous vehicles are a part of our daily lifestyle today. As we see them, they're always in the news, you know, for good or bad. Um, generally what we're hearing is when an accident occurs and it's always blamed on the autonomous vehicle, you know, we don't hear when an autonomous vehicle avoids an accident or provides some safety or comfort benefit to the passenger. We only hear the negative. So for the most part, it's a very biased news coverage today. In regards to timing, though, I would expect to see AVs become much more prevalent in large suburban areas as early as 2020. And I can see a time not too far off where what you'll see our large cities will become much more restrictive on the use of non-AVs in the city centers, and they'll promote the use of autonomous vehicles through services like Uber or Lyft, something like that. And I would see that as really the first step. After that, it's how we humans embrace the concept that will most greatly influence timing of a greater spread of autonomous vehicles. So while a large number of prominent thinkers will disagree with me on this, I don't see technology as the major obstacle. Because today when people are talking, they're talking about the technology obstacle. And I have to disagree with that being the primary obstacle. You know, technology, and we've seen this, especially in our era, we've seen how rapidly technology, technology can change when there's a large monetary reward waiting for the winner. I mean, we can see that all through the IT world with phones, all of that. So my opinion is that humans are the obstacle. We are, we are the biggest obstacle. But that will be overcome though, and this is gonna sound very cold, but that will be overcome though as the older generations age out and younger generations um, move into the workforce and have families. It's 
quite an interesting perspective. Yeah, it's again, that's why I would say most people disagree with me on it. But if I look at the research, you look at how many people are willing to use an autonomous vehicle today, very age specific and very market specific. If it's a younger demographic, heck yeah, I'm all in. And if it's an older demographic, hell no, I'm not getting in that thing. I'm not going to be driven by a robot. So it's very interesting to watch that. If you go to a developing country that doesn't have a long history of vehicle use, they're very quickly jump in. But if you go to a country like the U.S., Germany, long history, much slower adaptation rate. So, but it's going to be a matter of aging out. When people our age age out, then it'll be easier for it to adapt. When it becomes more common, do you see more opportunities for manufacturers, for tire manufacturers and or tire dealers? This will be my most unpopular response of the entire discussion. And I believe the shift to autonomous vehicles will be a major disruptive force to the industry from both manufacturing and distribution. You know, the business will become much less personal than it is today. And it's that personal aspect of the business that has sustained the independent dealer over the past several years. So, and here's, here's my reasoning behind this. You know, first off, and people aren't thinking about this, and, and people may not agree with me, but the majority of autonomous vehicles are gonna drive themselves to the shop to have tires changed. So today, we take the car down, we talk with the salesman, we, and in 70% of the cases or more, we buy what the dealer recommends us to buy. If the car drives itself down there, you don't have that interaction. So the purchase decision is influenced much differently than what it is today. So that's one major factor right there. The next significant change will be the increased commoditization of the product. So unfortunately, even today, tires are fairly commoditized. And it's a shame because when you look at the safety, the benefits, all the value of the tires, they're still really commoditized. Now, I'd say the exception to that would be um, product purchased by enthusiasts, like some of the all-train product, mud-train product, ultra-high-performance products, but the heavy majority of product is very commoditized. So if we're no longer driving the ultimate driving machine and the car is piloting itself, our connection to the tire changes dramatically. So my fear is that the value of a brand for tires will become very similar to the value of a brand for windshields. So if I asked you today, do you know what brand windshield you have? Would you know the answer to that? Or how about the brand of your brakes? Do you know what brake brand you use today? My Absolutely. fear is that will, yeah, and that's, that's my fear. My fear is that's where tires will evolve to. Now, Looking to the future and how does the dealer adapt, you know, this one becomes cold, but there are always winners and there are losers. And how you adapt your business will make that difference. So will you adapt your business to this new reality or will you not? You know, how will you reach out to the consumer? How will you improve the ease and efficiency of the transaction? Because it will come down to easy. You know, if you can't, if your car can't drive down there, get the tires installed and come back home without a problem, you're not going to compete. So the next thing to consider is perhaps the most critical point 
And that is, it's highly probable that car ownership will change from individual ownership to communal ownership or a pay-per-use model. So today we own our own cars by and large. But, and then that will, there will still be some people who will own their own car when it's an autonomous vehicle. You know, because there's always going to be the wealthy who want to have that, and it's a status symbol and such. But the majority of vehicles are going to be owned through a collective or communal ownership model, you know, where you have multiple families or individuals who will share the use of the vehicle. And if you look at it, it makes sense. You know, did you know that cars are only used about 5% of the time? 95% of the time, they sit idle doing nothing. And so that's, that's somewhat wasteful. So the obvious challenge becomes what happens during peak usage periods. Everybody has to be at work at eight. Everybody comes home at five. So how, do you, how does the work environment change around that? And I would expect that to change. So what I lean towards is that there'd be a greater shift to a pay-per-use model. You know, and we're starting to see that with a lot of stuff today. So instead of owning a car, You'll just, re, you know, that Uber will have your car. Uber will come pick you up for lunch. They'll take you home for dinner. And that's what we'll probably see. And if we look at it today, we're already seeing that occur in large metropolitan areas where vehicle ownership is decreasing and you have a greater emphasis on Uber or Lyft. So that's what I would expect. Now, and then finally, there will be a change in purchasing behavior under all these scenarios in that. Today, if the car is individually owned, then it's an individual owner who goes to the tire store to buy their tire. So there's a negotiation or a selling, a selling strategy based on that one-on-one -on -one type of relationship. But when we go into communal ownership or shared ownership or really a pay-per-use model, that means that the car will probably be owned by a fleet you know, professional buying system or, or fleet manager and that the pricing will be done differently. The transaction will be different. It's no longer personal. It'll be like, where does Avis get their tires? Where does Hertz get their tires? So that's what I would expect. I would see a big change instead of individual purchasers to more like fleet type buyers. Can an independent tire dealer do anything now to help prepare for that? Yeah, I mean there are there are smart people who adapt all the time. You know, it's the willingness to adapt that's important. So I would say that you know the best way to prepare is to simply be informed, you stay informed and be ready to adapt. You know, if you refuse to adapt, you will not survive. You know, it's economic darwinism. You know, history shows that the majority of people will not change. That's just our reality. That means there'll be greater reward for those who accept the reality and make the necessary adaptations. So really my recommendation to the independent de dealer would be stay abreast of the emerging technologies and understand how they can help you. Everything's, you know, change isn't always a negative. Change is going to happen. And how do you adapt around that change? And those who adapt quickly and adapt well will do very well in business. 